Hi, I'm Sam, and I'd like to welcome Harvey Brooks, a rock and roll bassist who has played on countless recordings by Bob Dylan, Jimi Hendrix, The Doors, Richie Havens, and more. Welcome, Harvey. How are you today? Oh, I'm fine. I'm uh, real happy to be here talking to you. Um, and uh, life is good in a very crazy world. Wait. <laughs> but life is good. You can't ask for much more than that, can you? I don't think so. All right. Well, how'd you get into playing bass? Well, uh, I'll tell you, it started, I started playing guitar. You know, I had a friend who uh, in a classroom in junior high school, uh, we had a show and tell, and he came in with his guitar. And uh, after the class, he showed me a couple of chords. And then two weeks later, I played my first gig with him for 50 cents on guitar, playing the two chords that I knew. So that kind of started my career. And then we formed a band. And I was the second guitar player, saxophone, drums, and two guitars. And we had a, a manager who uh, you know was going to help us you know make uh, play some gigs and he was using us for political purposes we found out at little parties for him but he had the wisdom to say you guys you need you got two guitars you need a bass and right about that time the electric bass was becoming popular and so he said hey you're going to have this bass and you're going to try this and this will be good and so I I took him at his word and uh, I started playing the bass a 17 and 17, 18 years old, I started playing full-time. Uh, 19, I was in Greenwich Village playing six nights a week. So what happened to me was I grew up in the time when these opportunities were available. And in Greenwich Village, there were uh, the Wagon Wheel, Trudy Hellers, all these clubs that were dance clubs. And it was all dance music, and I was playing all R&B stuff pretty much. And so I was learning that vocabulary. And so by playing as much as you can and playing music that you like, you know, instinctively and subconsciously, you learn all of these things, you know, and so it's just like conversation. I'm talking here to you, we have a vocabulary that's mutual. Well, and the same thing happens with the music. So I know I was playing and playing all different kinds of music. And uh, one of the, the band I was playing with, uh, we played on a, a few other gigs and with uh, Al Cooper, who was a friend of mine, I, I replaced the bass player in his band, when he went off to dental school. And, uh, and so uh, Al and I got together and played some, and then we kind of split up for a while, and I was playing in, in Manhattan a, a little gig, and he somehow got onto Bob Dylan's Highway 61 session, and he called me up saying that the bass players that they had uh, were not uh, acceptable to Bob Dylan. He wasn't happy with the feel, and Al knew I had a good feel because I'd been playing a lot of R&B and doing those kind of tours, and, uh, and when I say R&B, I, I don't mean the current R&B. I mean, the rhythm and blues from the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, maybe even 90s. Um, so, and I go back there, you know, in time. I'm not a youngster. So, but that's kind of what got me going on. It. And so it was, it became very, I was playing six nights a week. And I was playing this thing. And then, so I, I was up to a, a, a comfort level in my playing. And so I, I went to the session and uh, I walked into the studio. Uh, Bob was listening to uh, Like a Rolling Stone. That they had done a previous session before I got there. And um, that was my first meeting with him. 
And Al Cooper came up and he introduced me uh, to Bob. And, uh, you know, then Bob went back to the console and that was it for me. And I directed myself into the studio, plugged my bass into the trusty B-15 Ampeg. And uh, the session started. You know, Mike Bloomfield came bursting in from out. It was raining outside and he had his Telecaster uh, on his shoulder. You know, it's just no case. Uh, a crazy guy. Huh. Penny loafers. Yeah. So what was it like working with Bob Dylan? Okay, Dylan knew what he wanted. He could not articulate it to you in musical terms, but if it, you know, if it sounded and felt right, then it was good. And he came, he would come into the studio and he, he'd start playing the tune. And the, the song, what we had to do was construct a roadmap, a pathway through his song, because it had verses and it had a chorus and it had this here and that there. And, and we all had to play that together and uh, there was no, I had no rehearsals when I came there, so I had no idea. But the drummer, Bobby Gregg, you know, he was giving me hand signals because he, he had done a little uh, rehearsing on it, you know, and, and for each song. Uh, I, I kind of knew it myself, but the thing was, he was carrying me along. It was great when bass and drums, uh, I, I will say this was not the best playing that I've ever done, you know, but it was spontaneous. And my job was to make it feel okay and to be, to keep being being able to go forward, you know, which is what I, which is what I did. And Dylan was so uh, on it, and he, he and I be, he'd be writing the song, even you know, at, as we were playing it. When he was on piano, he would just take notes and 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 keep changing the lyrics. Or it was all very spontaneous. And then at the end, when we go back in and listen, and if the take was right, it felt good, and it wasn't outrageously out of tune or. Um, wrong changes and he felt like to feel that was it but there was no uh perfection in here the perfection came after it was created you know and then it became a perfect thing because you could play it over and over again and it would be the same and that's kind of perfection that's why we have all these robots now hmm. yeah that, that's interesting yeah you i guess you it, it's not the same when you're when you're playing live everything's always different but the studio recordings i guess they stay uh linear <laughs> That's it. That's it. You know, but the, you know, in the creative process, the next step is to take what you've created, that piece of perfection now, and take that and go play the same thing live. And for a music fan, that's a good thing. For people that only are into perfection, you know, they got to move on to something else. They don't have the patience for that. But there have been some great uh, live recordings that way. Grateful Dead built a whole career on live. I mean, they never sold a lot of records, you know? Well, you did lots of live stuff yourself, didn't you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, I played Madison Square Garden with the Doors and uh, uh, the Forum in L.A. with the Doors, uh, Dylan, Forest Hills, and Hollywood Bowl, Michael Fagan, <laughs> Donald Fagan. And uh, the Steely Dan band, not Steely Dan, but in this uh, Rock and Soul Review, did a whole lot of stuff. I was in a band called The Electric Flag uh, with Mike Bloomfield, guitar player. And uh, we did a lot of touring and a lot of records. And yeah, a lot of live playing. <laughs> and live, live playing is wonderful. Uh, it's not so, it's a little more difficult now because life in general is a little more difficult with the pandemics and planes and trying to get just trying to get someplace and, and being some dependable you know the most dependable way now is to go on a bus because unless it breaks down of course but at least you know it's you're not going to be uh, uh, held up for two days in Sheboygan <laughs> yeah that's that's true I guess <laughs> 
Well, you played a little bit with Jimi Hendrix too, didn't you? Yeah, we did. Uh, uh, I did a lot of playing with Jimi at uh, Cafe Gogo in New York before he uh, he went to England. When he came back, we did shows together, Electric Flag and uh, uh, Jimi Hendrix Experience, in which Buddy Miles and myself, we did a lot of jamming with Jimi uh, on those concerts. Uh, and we did this uh, thing at the Cafe Gogo that was a live, I think Butterfield was on it, uh, Jimi, I forget, like a bunch of people. But uh, that was in, uh, I think, 66, right before Jimi... Uh, was going off to uh, England. And an uh, interesting thing about that time was that uh, Jimmy uh, just signed a deal with Chas Chandler, who was the bass player, to take Jimmy to England. And um, I had come that same evening with a guy from Ferd Folkways in New York to sign Jimmy. And uh, you know, a twist of fate, <laughs> that kind of thing. The Animals. Chas Chandler was with The Animals. And uh, uh so all that stuff was going on. It was a very alive, live music. Uh, all the clubs were popping. Uh, record companies were putting a lot of money in, into developing the acts. You know, and now it's it's not. It's a little different now. But I, I kind of you know, there's a certain there's a certain thing about streaming the the streaming world. It's basically eliminated recording for the recording artists, except for the elite. Only the the top, and you know, very very difficult for everybody else. Uh, the streaming, you know, is an opportunity to continue. But I just did an album that it's out. I mean, but I'm not going on tour to promote it. It will do whatever it's going to do. Uh, but I did it, and I felt great about it. And I, I hope some people get to hear it. It's called Elegant Geezer, <laughs> and it's in all the streaming uh, uh, outlets. All right. Uh, so so it's in every one of them. So yeah, you know, it's. It's me singing for the first time on uh, some tunes, a couple of instrumentals, and but I have fun with it, so I, I hope somebody can get out there and check it out. Well, that's, Elegant Geezer. That's all that matters, Geezer. right? That you have fun <laughs> with it. it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and while I'm on that uh, line of thought, I also have a book called View from the Bottom that's out now and can be gotten at all those same uh, Amazon and all those kind of stores. All right. And uh, and thankfully, my wife, Bonnie, she really helped me put that together because, you know, I've been on this a lot of years and I went through a lot of phases in my life where I I could not be that coherent, you know, and people, uh, you know, that that happens. But very fortunate to uh, be on the bright side now. And uh, we we put this book book together with a friend of ours, Frank Beecham, and Tangible Press, it's on, and as I said, up there. And it's telling, it, it tells this story and also the, uh, the life uh, beyond that in the uh, later years. All right. And I'm 78 now, so... Well, yes. that, that sounds like a good read. I'll be sure to check that out. Do that. Well, what do you think of the Doors' decision to not have a bassist as an official member of the band? Ah, uh, you know what? I think that was... There's a few things about that. One thing is that the feel that they have, their original feel and sound, really was Ray's left hand on that on the bass thing he had. I mean, it really made that sound. I think on the records, and, and also it was a financial thing. You know, uh, if you had a, a bass player who was part of the band, that's another share. So it's also a monetary consideration. But I think musically, Ray, arrangement-wise, uh, in those uh, early albums, that was their sound. Uh, but as but there were certain kind of things that it just didn't work, you know. So when when they did the live show, uh, sometimes they had a bass player. Uh, there'd be different ones for different sounds. I I did the soft parade. 
because John Densmore liked the fact that I played a little funky behind the beat, you know, a, a certain kind of tension that he liked, kind of a jazzy R&B thing, as opposed to uh, Jerry Sheff or some of the other guys that did what they did. So I think it's a slot they just wanted to keep open uh, so that they never had to really lock into that. And I think a big part of it was probably financial. Mm. And, th- and they didn't need it, but it made the records better yeah. you know, because it, it added imagination that and the sound that Ray didn't have. Well, it must have been really, like, interesting, like, as an experience playing with the Doors. Yeah, it was interesting, all right. You know, I, I had to catch, you know, to have a conversation with Jim. It had to be on the right day and the right time of the day. I mean, this is a very smart man, you know, a cultured person who had no control. You know, he, he just kind of lost his control about drugs and about alcohol and about lifestyle. Uh, but I had a lot of uh, good chats with him. Uh, but when it, when it came to uh, uh, in my role in the band uh, and on that particular album, they were not happy together. Jim had been in England uh, doing some stuff, and then they made some business decisions without consulting him first. He didn't want commercials to be done from, his, from the songs. And they did because it's very lucrative. So that's the, the story there. So I came into a situation where you know, uh, Paul Rothschild, their producer, hired me. And my friend Paul Harris was a arranger, horns and strings. And he brought us in, you know, to make that album different from the other ones. That The sound was getting stale. And I had worked with Paul before. And so I'd get a call, be at studio at 1 o'clock. And nobody would get there until 3 or 4. And I'd be sitting there, smoke a joint, uh, whatever, to keep occupied. And, uh, and then they'd come in. And it'd be like little pieces. And, and my my role, I mean, first of all, these guys are great. I mean, they're, they're really good. I had to connect things. And one of the roles that a bass has in this context is to t- take sections, make a, a bridge to the section, a, a little line to carry something here or to, to uh, accentuate a line that was played. And so in, in the roadmap of the song, whenever there were little bridges to go over or stopping over here at a, a place where it, it said it sat for a while, but those kind of things uh, are what you know, I would do. And it would, and I would do it in a comfortable way. And it would connect, you know, the different thoughts that the guys had. And uh, I was not, a, a, I was not a writer of the songs, but I was a creator, a mercenary creator. Uh, yeah. So, but it was great. But it was, it was tough. It took a long time uh, because the guys were not happy, you know. And I had to keep working out stuff. And Jim would come in and do a rough vocal. Uh, and once we got the track, he would come in and. Uh, some of the songs he didn't like. He wasn't sure if he liked the sound of it. I got along great with him. He came around pretty much uh, towards the end of the album. Uh, I would go sometimes, uh, Rothschild would call me down to when they were doing the vocals at night, and I would go down there, and you know, I'd sit in the back and just listen. You know, And the guy was just a great singer. So many, you know, so many of these people that were really talented were stupid, so stupid that, you know, 27 years old was like a bad year. Yeah. For these people to be, they're all dead at 27. Jim Morrison, Jimi Hendrix, Kurt Cobain. I mean, there's a whole list, right? Janet, Janis Joplin. Yeah, Janis Joplin. So, hey, you know, I always thought that uh, with all of this, all of these kind of things going on, people would realize that drugs are not a good thing. You know, that, listen, if you have to take drugs to have a good time, to be creative, get a life, man. <laughs> get a life. 
because it's got to come from you and not some, you know, I mean, I work with so many people, I get a call at four o'clock in the morning, this guy's just crazy, it's shit, you know, it wasn't good. So I'll just pass that on, you know, come from the heart, you know, don't, don't change it, you know, don't, don't filter it into something you think somebody wants to hear or somebody, you know, do what you do. And if you're successful, great. If not, have a good life, but, you know, just go for yourself, go for Go for what you feel like, you know, and, and, and for musicians, play, find people to play with, you know, and don't make it a business, you know, let it become a business if you're going to do that, but get, you know, get the music happening. Don't, don't get so distracted by success. Well, all right. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's uh, you know, I've played on lots of records, you know, where there's pressure and you gotta, you know, you gotta learn confidence is how you do everything. And the way you get confident is you practice, you keep trying to learn more. You know, don't think because you can play 15 chords that you're a qualified musician because you're not. You know, even even if it works in a band that sold a million records, you're not, you know, and it may not matter. But I say this, that learn as much about your instrument, you know, and, and what you do in, in the music as you can. The more you know, the more you know where the notes are, the less you have to think about what you're playing, the better off you are. You know, it's, and it's, it's fun all the time. You're hearing what somebody else is playing and you're getting it and you're, it's coming through you and you're sending it to somewhere, uh, some other band player. You know, and, and that's what makes the music happen. It's a back and forth. Now, anybody who isolates themselves, like if you see somebody is just so tight in a rhythm, you know, and everything else is loose, it's not going to work. So, you know, well, that's I've... what I think. That's that's a, a a good opinion, I guess. You you're certainly qualified to uh to know what you're talking about here. <laughs> and uh thank you so much for talking to me, Harvey. It's been so great getting to hear your story playing with the Doors, Jimi Hendrix, Bob Dylan, you know, being a bass player, like that's that's gotta be some life you've had and it, it must have been a lot of fun. Yeah, well I gotta tell you, standing on the stage of Madison Square Garden and looking out all those people, you know, you know, when, you know, on the doors thing was just—it's a—it's a great experience. And uh, but thank you, I, I appreciate having the opportunity to chat. Yes, for sure. It—it it was certainly, certainly a lot of fun. I thought. Take care, Sam. Thank you. Bye. Bye, folks. I'm Sam, and that was an interview with Harvey Brooks, a bass player for Bob Dylan, The Doors, Jimi Hendrix, and more. If you liked that interview, make sure to check out my back pages on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and any other podcasting platform to listen to more great interviews just like this one.